Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, one of the big stories in media and entertainment investing is, can anybody compete with Netflix? And we're seeing some companies make some big moves. We've seen most notably the Walt Disney Company buy 21st Century Fox for more than $70 billion in an effort to compete against Netflix. So let's talk media and entertainment stocks. We are pleased to welcome Laura Martin. Laura is a senior analyst for Needham Company. She's based in LA, but she joins us here in a Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Laura, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. So... Can anybody compete with Netflix? What is your view on Netflix to begin with? Because you are one of the few analysts out there that is not pounding the table on Netflix. Yeah, right. So I find it's hard to make money when you agree with the crowd. So I take the hate mail that okay. comes with being negative on Netflix. Um, so my concern about Netflix is that um, they're get about to get, they've been a monopolist with other people's programming for most of the last seven years. And now they're going to get companies competing with them that not only have deeper pockets, but also have a lower marketing cost and a lower content cost because they own their own libraries. So in the case of Disney and Warner Brothers, which is now owned by AT&T, they have 50 years of programming they've already paid for and amortized. So it's a lower cost of content because Netflix has to pay cash for all their original content. And then each of those companies has sister subsidiaries that they can advertise for free. So Disney owns ABC. They can put their own 30-second spot telling you that Disney Entertainment exists. Netflix has to buy every single spot of paid media. So, it's, so, they, so both of those companies have a lower cost of content and a lower marketing cost. In the case of Apple, which spent 90 minutes sort of talking about their new streaming service, they do $50 billion a year free cash flow. Netflix spends 13 and has to borrow three of it. If actually Apple started spending 13 billion, you wouldn't notice because they'd still have 40 billion to buy in shares or pay dividends. Well, which raises a question because this is speculation that we've heard from a number of people. Could Apple end up buying Netflix? Could Netflix actually get uh, some sort of cash infusion from a third party? Um, maybe I think it is. Un I think it would be more likely that in the end, Apple will try to do it itself at the highest brand level, and it's much more likely that the brand consistency is because of the Walt. It was would be with the Walt Disney Company, which it could buy, and there's similar brand strength. And as you know, you know Bob Iger was on the Apple board, and Steve Jobs was on. So Dis more Bob likely Iger's that board. Apple would buy Disney. Disney. Mm -hmm. And the problem with Netflix is the day you buy Netflix, you lose Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos. So I don't know what you think the value of Netflix is without those top five managers that founded it. 25 years ago, but it's a lot less because those people are extraordinary and they won't be employees because they're going to be worth billions of dollars. So let's go back to that Walt Disney deal, probably the biggest M&A trade we've seen in the media space in a long time. We never thought we'd see Rupert Murdoch uh, sell, at least I didn't think we'd ever see Rupert Murdoch sell this company. Do you think Disney now has the assets to compete against Netflix and the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Apples of the world? And, and I'll point out that Disney has an investor meeting next week, April 11th, where presumably they'll unveil some more uh, details about their streaming business. Yes, I do. I do think it's large enough because actually content creation is a core competence of Disney. I do think you need 24 by 7 programming. What we've seen with WWE, which went first into the over-the-top streaming, is you have to have 10,000 hours in your library when you launch. Disney had all AAA titles, but it didn't have any 10,000 hours. Now they have that 10,000 hours. So I think they have a really legitimate streaming service and a lot of the content that you guys everybody's watching on Netflix is coming off and moving to the Walt Disney cha entertainment channel so, while Netflix is raising their price to you 
So the concerns about Netflix are legitimate, and there's something that we've heard from other people as well. Uh, the question is, how does an investor value those risks? Because right now we're looking at Netflix shares uh, that are valued at $369, uh, give or take. And I'm just wondering where the correct value should be given some of these pressures that really are coming more online now uh, in a way that they never have before. Right. Well, the number that I think is the most telling is Netflix trades at 10 times revenue, Apple trades at 16 times earnings. So if you had to back one of them, anything that goes wrong at Netflix and you're 10 times, the next closest fang is eight times and that's Facebook. So it's going to stop at eight and then, you know, Disney trades at three. Interesting. Uh, so it's so just really overvalued. It's interesting. One of the things, uh, you know, about uh, Netflix, I think I think has been driving this stock really over the years has been the subscriber growth. So the question is they have, you know, some 150 million, some odd subscribers globally. That seems like a big head start, even for an Apple, even for a Disney. Um, do you think there's room in this streaming market for multiple streamers? I mean, how many checks are people going to be writing every month? Well, so I think that actually is the best question in media right now because the average home gets three over-the-top services, including skinny bundles. If you think that number stays at three, then what happens is the incumbent Netflix, which has 60 million U.S. subs, must be losing subs to Warner or Apple or Disney, which means their U.S. sub growth goes negative. Now, can you sustain a 10 multiple of revenue when your U.S. subs are negative? Even if you can grow, even if you can grow your international subs faster to offset, which you might not be able to, and I don't think a growth investor can take a negative subgrowth, even if it's just in the U.S. But these are a lot of ifs, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a question of the cost point, too, and the fact that Netflix has developed a lot of original programming mm -hmm. that a lot of people really like, right? I mean, it's not that they're completely reliant on Disney uh, subscriptions. So do, what do you think? I mean, is there any kind of early indication of how many individual packages customers are willing to pay for? Well, I think here's, an, here's a logical consumer behavior. There is no incentive for you to sign up for longer, uh, more months for Netflix. So when Bird Box comes out and it's hit, you can pay $10, watch it all, turn it off, mm. go to the Walt Disney Company, watch all the stuff you want to watch, turn it off, go to Warner Brothers for $10, watch it, turn it off. You know that the marketers in the room are going to give you a discount if you buy a bundle. If you take three months or six months, they're going to try to lock you in for longer because that's a better business model. Netflix gives you no incentive not to come, watch what's hot, and leave after 30 days. Laura Martin, thank you so much for joining us. We will not be sending you hate mail. We think your views are really compelling. Thank you. Laura Martin, senior analyst at Needham & Company, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Let's talk oil. WTI is up nearly 50% from its December low to over $62 a barrel. What's driving this rise and how high can it go? Fortunately, our next guest has an opinion on that. We welcome Jason Schenker. Jason is president of Prestige Economics, also chairman of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. He's based in Austin, Texas. Keep it weird. But he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Jason, welcome. So again, we've had this big roller coaster for oil, you know, crashing there in the fourth quarter last year, but then staging this really strong rally here. What's driving it? 
Well, I think there's a couple fundamental things we need to look at with oil. And the first is uh, really important here is what's going on with Chinese growth. China's the biggest net importer in the world of crude oil. Uh, there were a few months of consecutive monthly contractions in Chinese manufacturing. If you look at the privately compiled session manufacturing index, and we actually cr closed in November, sort of mid-November, uh, below levels that we hadn't seen on the downside uh, in, in terms of a downtrend since the last Chinese manufacturing recession started in December 2014. So crossing below those technicals in the middle of November of 2018, really important, we rose above those levels just this past week because that Chinese manufacturing PMI number that came out on Sunday night, surprising number, back above 50 after three contractions. So should be no surprise, biggest net importer in the world of crude oil is expanding again, and crude oil prices close above those recessionary type prices. So how much upside does oil have from here, given the fact that China does seem to be uh, at least uh, stopping the slowdown, if you will? Well, I think there's a little bit more upside here. We actually saw upside for price during the year, even though this Chinese manufacturing recession was going on, uh, although although brief, a quarter long. Uh, we think that the really most important thing people need to know is that the U.S. summer driving season is one of the most critical things that drives oil prices. Presented was always presenting upside risk to Q1 and Q2. We now see a little more upside risk. So before we would have said prices maybe 60 to 65, now 65 to 70. Just uh, to give a point of more, reference, we're talking WTI, which is currently yes. 62 and a half. That's right. Uh, 62.50. Uh, in terms of price per barrel. So you see that going up to a range of 65 to 70. Yeah, we could easily see that because this summer's driving season is likely to be the biggest summer driving season in history. Last year was the biggest. This year's going to be even bigger, right? We think wage inflation, most recent job report up 3.4% year on year. Unemployment rate 3.8%. Everybody's got jobs. Everybody's got money. They're going to be going places this summer with their families. So no matter what happens with China, you are always going to get some support, at least until the September contract roll in the middle of July. All right, so that's demand, very bullish on the demand from your perspective. But isn't there a lot of supply? Aren't they pumping out this shale oil faster than they can even get it to the terminal? Right, so there's a lot of supply for oil, which is why oil was slower to recover than a number of industrial metals after the Chinese manufacturing recession that lasted from December 2014 until June 2016. Other things rose faster because there was a lot more supply of oil, but it still rose on trend from mid-2016 until uh, we saw that pull back then in, in significantly in October and then November 2018. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit more dampened than other commodities because we have a higher supply situation, but commodities are bought and not sold. And so big summer driving season means refineries are going to be consuming a lot of oil to meet that demand. And, of course, if China can even remain just above 50, we're going to be in, in this. Uh, the $65, $70 range in Q2. Why not higher than 65 to 70 if well, all so those this things is happen? Part of, right. So could we in spikes see things higher? Yeah, it's possible. But part of the reason we, we may not see it higher is because we still have uh, China in a um, uh, right in still tepid growth. There's still questions what's going to happen. Trade war things still going on, right? That's a deal. And of course, in Europe, right, Eurozone manufacturing contracted significantly for a second consecutive month. This is a bigger concern. This is obviously outside the Brexit stuff, but this is Eurozone manufacturing was in an all time record. You're just high. saying that because you know that we don't necessarily want to talk about Brexit right well, now. Well, yeah, well, you know, but, but but what's going on in the Eurozone is is much more than than what's going on with Brexit, right? European Monetary Union kind of second 
separate deal, but Eurozone manufacturing was at an all-time record high in December 2017, slid all last year, and that wasn't because of Brexit concerns. That was the end of quantitative easing coming, and the Europeans couldn't do it, and they still have negative deposit rates, and so now we see the ECB going more dovish. They're going to kick it back up later in the year, and but, but between now and then, um, you know, there's some risks, and that's something that kind of limits some of the upside for say, commodities that are consumed on a global basis. Yeah, it sounds, I'm glad you brought up Europe because, you know, obviously it looks like China uh, is stabilizing and maybe getting some green shoots of growth there. But Europe, as you just mentioned, very weak uh, across Europe, including Germany. So uh, to what extent, uh, what's the risk in your opinion that European growth could weaken even further? Yeah, so there there is the potential for this. We saw this uh, a few years ago when the European Central Bank tried to reduce the central bank balance sheet from around uh, 3.1 trillion euros to two. And as we know now, it's closer to four and a half because that failed miserably. Even apparently trying to slow the expansion of the balance sheet or stopping it is failing miserably. So this means that uh, more quantitative easing coming. Until though that happens, uh, you could see a bit more downside very responsive economy to that stimulus. Very. What's interesting to me is everyone sort of just expects the U.S. economy as a given to continue chugging along and accelerating this year. And I actually uh, was looking this morning at the City U.S. Economic Surprise Index, which is at its lowest level since 2017, which sort of, uh, to put this into English, means that the greatest proportion of economic reports are coming out below analysts' expectations in the United States uh, since 2017. And I'm just wondering, you know, especially given the Fed's uh, reluctance to make any move whatsoever, is the U.S. economy weaker than people expect or think right now? So I think there are some concerns people need to be aware of. I would uh, harken back to Ben Bernanke's quote at the beginning of January that business cycles don't die, they get murdered, or don't die of old age, they get murdered. And if we were to, um, like Inspector Renault, round up the usual suspects, what would they be? Well, the usual suspects might be, uh, you know, the fact that in 2018 we had more IPOs of companies with negative earnings than in, in the history of ever, right? So that's, Lift. you know, that that's something, right? So so these, these you know, that's maybe a thing, right? If we were to say, okay, we learned our lesson in the housing bubble, Right and and the financial crisis, but maybe we forgot the lessons of 2000, 2001. It was right? a long time ago. Right? We it was understand. A long time ago, yeah. right? A lot of folks on the street were not in high working school. at okay, the time, right? Yeah. So that, that's a thing. The other thing, of course, is if we look at some of the economic data, we we also do see slower growth in October 20, um, 2017. You know, we have seen these higher interest rates. We were expecting four rate hikes last year because of a year-on-year -year base effect for inflation. This year, we were expecting zero. We're we're not going to get any this year. And that's also a base on a year-on-year -year effect of inflation. The, the other usual suspect then there is the Fed. Were they behind the curve or now are they ahead of the curve? Are they responding too slowly to inflation risk? You know, that, that's also a thing. But I think business investment is at risk this year. And we saw a recession in business investment. Most people forget, end of 2015, end of 2016. We could see a U.S. business invest, in investment recession sometime this year. But we still expect 1.8% GDP overall for the year. 1.8% far below uh, some of the higher expectations of economists, but growth nonetheless uh, that's fairly solid. Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, also the chairman of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor.
In June of 2012, Raja Gupta, a former CEO of McKinsey, was convicted of insider trading associated with the Galleon hedge fund scandal and sentenced to two years in prison. The Galleon founder was also convicted and sent to prison. Mr. Gupta was released in 2016 and has since published his new memoir entitled Mind Without Fear. We sat down with Mr. Gupta earlier this week to discuss his conviction and time in prison and started things off by asking him, why write the book? Well, let me first say why it's not written, which is not try to relitigate the case okay. or to convince lots of people I'm innocent. I just want to present my viewpoint, which I had steadfastly maintained my silence because the matter was sub judice till the beginning of this year. And I wanted to honor the tradition of not saying anything while my appeals were going on. So I decided to write my story, uh, one, to you know, get my story out in my own words. Second, I actually wanted to write a broader story than just the trial, because in many ways I've had an interesting life. Everybody has an interesting life, but I also had an interesting life. And um, there are many lessons learned from it. There were many ups and downs. And I wanted to write it for young people who could relate to pieces of it, you know, and I wanted to write in a very direct, you know, personal style, giving what I was feeling and going through these experiences. And hopefully some lessons will come out of that, not only in terms of this last few years, but also my own professional career and my childhood, my, my life philosophy. And you did have a dramatic rise to the top of the corporate world until this uh, this conviction, one of the largest insider trading cases in the United States. You, you say in the book that you felt wronged by what happened and that you feel like the true uh, villains of, of the crisis and of financial markets have not been prosecuted. Who are the real villains? I mean, those of you who report on the financial markets would know better. I mean, I, I can say one simple fact, you know, all we did uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis is uh, make big fines for banks, which, of course, the shareholders end up paying for. And the executives kept all their bonuses and all their money they made. And this was the biggest crisis in American history for a long time. Uh, thousands and thousands of people lost their jobs. They lost their pensions. They lost their homes and banks were held accountable for misdeeds, fraud even, and yet no one in the senior management of any of the banks were found accountable. Do you think that senior bank executives, senior financial uh, executives should in fact gone to jail? You tell me, when, when a bank is fined billions of dollars and admits to fraud, Human beings do that, right? No machines are doing this fraud or this bad practices. So, yes, of course. I don't think we've held the executives at that time been held accountable. To this day, you maintain your innocence. What do you believe the courts got wrong? Well, as you know well, insider trading implies that actual insider information was passed. Second, that there was criminal intent Third, that there was consequential benefit. And they couldn't prove any of it. There was only some circumstantial evidence in timing of calls, but there was, they recorded Raj Ratnam for 18 months. 
there was not a single conversation between us that passed any insider information. There was no emails. There were no witnesses. So yet there was yet they convicted you. You appealed. Yeah, no, to I'm your, saying I, you're saying yep. you know what they got wrong. They, they they didn't meet any of the criteria, right? And second, there were 22 people convicted in the Galleon case, or related. I don't know what the exact number is. Every one of them had a quid pro quo arrangement with Raj. How is it that I'm the only person who had no benefit, no arrangement, nothing? What was jail like? Jail, by and large, was okay, except for the fact that, um, you know, as they say, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, the prison system is run as if they have absolute power. And they sent me to uh, solitary confinement uh, three times, one time for seven weeks with no what? seven for what? weeks. Why? Why? Uh, you can buy towels in the commissary in prison, right? I had a bad back, so when you sit on chairs, I rolled up two towels and stitched them for a little pillow, support pillow. And they came and searched my um, my little bunk area, and uh, they found nothing, except that pillow, that towel rolled up, was sitting on the bottom of my bed. And the guy said, uh, "Well, this is uh, tampering with government property." <laughs> and um, so they sent me to solitary confinement for seven weeks. And you know, if there is anything, I would say, please. Get that out to the world that this the prison system is run like that. Right, it's terrible. They want you to, you know, go and hang your head and be repentant and you know don't don't treat you like human beings. Uh, in many of the time, solitary confinement you would think is a very quiet kind of place. Everybody is in a single cell and so on. No, it's absolutely the noisiest place in prison because there are. Steel doors and walls, and people are going crazy. They are banging steel doors. They are shouting. They're, right. you know, it's it's you and defines more than two weeks of solitary confinement as severe torture. And you had seven. I had seven, and this goes on. This is not not just me. As a CEO of McKinsey, you had every CEO on speed dial. What's it like now? What happened? Did your friends? No, many. No, no, no. Many people have stayed by me. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, oh, vast majority of people have stayed by me. Some have turned away, but you know, also I was, you know, in a retirement mode. I was spending most of my time on philanthropic things. So when I came out after this seven years, I have no particular desire to go back into the commercial world in in the way I was before. Or way back when I was fully engaged in the commercial world, so I had no particular reason. And many of the CEOs have honestly retired. It's been now seven, right, eight, right. nine years. That was Rajat Gupta, a former chief executive officer of McKinsey, who spent two years in prison for insider trading. His new memoir, Mind Without Fear, is available now. And one of the things that he is committing himself to, uh, as we discussed in that interview and afterwards, was uh, to prison reform because of his experience in solitary confinement.
Well, for many executives, the global economic outlook became more clouded in the first quarter. In the U.S., a disappointing February jobs report stoked concerns over the stability and sustainability of a strong economy, and key foreign markets like China and Germany continued to struggle. So how are companies reacting to these uncertain conditions? Our next guest has some very interesting data to answer that question. We welcome Sandy Cockrell, Global CFO Program Leader for Deloitte. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Sandy, thanks so much for joining us. I know Deloitte does their quarterly CFO survey where you survey 150 so CFOs. What's the survey telling you now? Very interesting. Uh, if you start off with the view of the macro economies, uh, 80% of the survey CFOs said that the North American economy was actually good today. But when you look at a year, only 28% expected it to improve. So that really lines up with some of the findings around what we're thinking about where the economy goes. About 84% of the CFOs said that we would either have a slowdown or a recession by the end of 2020. Now, the interesting thing that we found when you compare that to other surveys, and especially what economists are saying, only 15% of those said we would actually have a recession. So most of the CFOs are expecting a slowdown. We thought that was pretty important. When you look at Europe, uh, only 16% of the surveyed CFOs said your economy is good right now, and only 8% expect it to approve in a year. Now, if Brexit works out, we would expect those numbers to move up a little bit, but still very, very low. With respect to China, only 20% see that, see, see that, that economy basically performing well today, and when 16% better in a year. So those are really low numbers when you think about projecting into the okay. future. Okay, so can you go into the mind of a chief financial officer right now, the sort of archetypical uh, CFO? Are they a pessimistic bunch? No, not really. But I think what, what the backdrop, think about what they're having to deal with. The number one concern is around trade and tariffs. Uh, this, this survey really does capture multinational companies who have supply chains all over the world, um, who are trading in foreign markets. So trade and tariff is incredibly important. So if you go back three or four months ago when they put their fiscal year 2019 budgets in place, now they're having to execute against those. And there's still this cloud of uncertainty that, that they've got to deal with. Okay, so then here's my question. Are they actually acting on their pessimism by pulling back some of the potential investments? In other words, is this actually uh, the, the sort of uncertainty directly affecting the economy, and you're seeing that through this survey? Well, one of the things that we ask is, is it a good time to take on risk? And only 41% of the surveyed CFO says now would be a good time to take on risk. That's a relatively low number in the context of the history of our survey. So that really kind of makes your point. Second, when you think about own company optimism, we ask a question about, compared to three months ago, are you more optimistic about the next 12 months or less optimistic? That stands at a net 16 percentage points, which again is pretty low. So yes, those things are certainly affected their thinking. Um, they're having to make decisions without clarity, without all the information they would like. Secondly, they, they cited a number of concerns that drive this thinking. Just the natural kind of flow of business and, and credit cycles, where we are right there. Um, and then last, they cited the slowing growth in China and Europe is something that they're very concerned about. Well, Sandy, how about internal to their own companies? One of the things that, you know, where the good news we've seen over the last several years is the economy is approaching or at full employment. We're right. having some wage increase. Are the CFOs concerned that they just can't find good people? Yes, that, that perennial quarter to quarter for the last three years, the number one internal concern is basically the acquisition retention of talent. 
And it's not just in the finance organization. It's across the enterprise. And it's really exacerbated by the fact that moving to digital technologies and tools, um, having the people that actually utilize those things. So you're seeing a, really a transformation in the workforce, and it's a huge concern to CFOs because they're really the ones that watch productivity. Were you surprised by these results? No, no, not really. The thing I was surprised about was, was on the recession. I would have expected more of the CFOs, in line with what we hear from leading economists, to expect a true technical recession by the end of 2020. Okay. So that surprised us a little bit. And, and with respect to just sort of putting some historical perspective, is there sort of a size and scope in how pessimistic uh, CFOs are about one year out? I mean, is it um, like the most pessimistic? It, it, in these five are years, these are very years? low numbers. Um, compared, these are well below our two-year averages in terms of that index, that optimism index. Um, with respect to business metrics, forecast of revenue growth, earnings growth, capex, hiring, and dividends, all those are below their two-year two-year averages in terms of twelve-month projections. So, Sadie, how are the CFOs as a group in terms of kind of projecting the future? If they're calling for a slowdown, maybe a recession. Are they any good at predicting this stuff? Well, what I'd say is, is over, well over half, about 60% of the CFOs actually have created downturn plans, which is good. So they've got scenarios they can pull off the, to, to pull levers in those things. The two levers that they'll pull, if we get further into this year and things don't begin to turn around or, or deteriorate, are going to be, number one, moving to cost reduction programs, and second, looking at headcount. Those will be the two levers that just start seeing pulled which is going to be concerning when we talk about the strength in the jobs market. That could weaken materially if there is some sort of downturn or perceived downturn in the relatively near future. Sandy Cockrell, thank you so much for being with us. Fabulous having you here. Sandy Cockrell is Global CFO Program Leader for Detroit, joining us here in studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.